So I get ready for bed and I go in my room and, you know, lay in my bed. And maybe a minute later, I hear my door, you know, creaking open very slowly. So I sit up a little bit and I said, hey, uh, hey, what's going on? And then he then he clicks the light on. He's got a he's got a 22 caliber revolver pointed right at me. And it's a situation where remember it very vividly. And you can see the you can see the ammunition in the in the barrel. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the show. This is your host, Ryan Warner. My guest today is Jay Jackson. Jay wrestled and coached at Stanford in the 90s, but this conversation is about one of the craziest stories I've ever heard in terms of how wrestling can literally save someone's life. I'm not going to give away the story, just get to the episode because it's pretty incredible uh, the situation that Jay went through and how wrestling indeed saved his life. Fan of the week goes to... My man, Big Rob underscore 18 on the gram. Really appreciate the support, my friend. Thank you. And folks, I have an update. The podcast now has a title sponsor. We're sponsored by Spartan Combat. They're a wrestling company. Same people who bring you Spartan races, but they're a wrestling company. They make gear. They sponsor the Spartan Combat RTC, which is all the Cornell guys. Maybe you've heard of them. Kyle Dake, Yanni D, they're all sponsored by Spartan Combat. And they also host events. They're hosting their first national tournament May 21st in Jacksonville, Florida. I would love to see a ton of you folks there. Check out SpartanCombat.com. SpartanCombat.com to register for their inaugural national tournament being held May 21st. And that's it, folks. Let's get to the interview with Jay Jackson. Jay Jackson, welcome to the podcast, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm very happy and honored to be here. Love the podcast, huge fan. And seeing your lineup of guests, I'm just incredibly humbled. Well, we're going to thank Joe DeSena for the Joe DeSena for this one. Um, he said there was this Olympic wrestler, Jay Jackson, but uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Um, but no, it's, it's great to have you on, man. And I I'm nervous about this conversation because I know we're going to go with some sensitive places. I'm excited because I don't think people fully understand 
just how incredible your story is through a number of angles. So let's dive right on into it, man. When did the wonderful sport of wrestling enter your life, Mr. J? So my dad, my dad is a wrestling coach and actually a Hall of Fame wrestling coach in Washington. He wrestled at University of Washington, then he was an assistant coach there, and then he had a 35-plus year coaching career. So it's something I was always born into, and it kind of runs two generations deep. My grandpa was a, was a wrestler, so he was an amateur wrestler and a professional wrestler in Colorado, and he actually used to go around from mining camp to mining camp and challenge, challenge people to wrestle. That's how he made money during the depression. So it runs, it runs at least two generations deep. Plus genetically, I'm kind of predisposed to this. Um, I was blessed with a, I'm not the tallest mountain in the range. And I was blessed with a lack of ability to run fast or jump high. So there's only a few sports that I can do. So thank goodness for wrestling. And, you know, wrestling is just the tip of the iceberg because the structure that in which you grew up, your dad, you know, had you doing things that the normal kid can't even conceive of. So what was it, what was it like growing up with your father and what were some of the things he had you doing at a young age? So first off, my dad was a green beret and I didn't know that until I was in eighth grade. And one of my friends came up to me and said, Hey, I, I heard your dad was a green beret. And I went home that night and I was like, dad, um, Nick said you're a green beret. Is that true? And my dad just said, yeah. And then that's all we talked about it for a couple of years. So pretty, pretty humble guy. Um, but very tough. And I'm from a pretty affluent area in Washington, uh, Mercer Island, Washington, which is a suburb of, of Seattle. And it's not, it's, it's not the toughest area, I would say, because of, because of the affluence. It's not, certainly not a blue-collar area. And kids in my area could be, could be maybe not as tough as, as, say, a farm kid. So my dad didn't want that. He wanted his, his kids to be tough. So he used to test us with things. And I'll just answer that question mostly by saying my dad did it right. And you can, you can push really hard if you have two things and those things are structure and support. Uh, for my dad, that's, that structure was, I always knew that he wasn't gonna do anything too crazy. I knew it was gonna be something, but it wasn't gonna be something he threw at me that was like way outside the realm of something I could deal with. And I also knew that there was that support. You know, he was there to help me through the process, kind of coach me through it. And if I failed, which, you know, is often the case, then he was going to be there. And if you have those things, you can do a lot of stuff. And I'll say, you know, some of those things were a little crazy, um, you know, from not from my perspective, because I understood what was happening, but from other people's perspectives. Um, you know, one of those things that's going to come up later is he used to, you know, have us wrestle blindfolded. And, you know, and his thought on the thing was, and I understood this, his thought was, if you wrestle blindfolded, then when you wrestle in a match where you're not blindfolded, it's going to be easier. So I'm, I guess I won't, I won't get into the depths of how hard my dad pushed me, but let's just say he pushed, he pushed hard, but it's something I always understood and that support was always there. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's cool to see it pay off later in life. And so you, you wrestle um, when, in high school, would you say you were like, completely engrossed with it or were you still juggling multiple sports and kind of didn't know which way you wanted to go yet? So when it came to wrestling with me, I just, I had a passion for it and passion for me, purpose that's kind of supercharged by emotions. So my dad didn't let me start as, as much as I was around wrestling and watching it. My dad didn't let me start until like late sixth grade, early seventh grade. And at that point, you've got other people, you're kind of playing a little bit of catch up, but 
it's a good thing, you know, because you see, you see a direction you're going to go and you see the purpose and, you know, I've got to work these things and get better so I can, I can catch those guys, which seems, seems to me to be a lot easier thing than being the person that's trying to stave off, you know, all the people that are trying to, trying to catch it. And the emotion part for me is, is that you, once you start seeing your improvements and stuff, then you get pride and, and you kind of enjoy that feeling. So I'm kind of glad my dad started me when he did because I've never gotten tired of the, of the sport. Uh, just, just love it and today still love it. Man, and th- what you're doing through some of the, I guess the, I don't know if you call it mental training and we're going to get into that is, is awesome because it, it impacts kids who, you know, maybe wrestling isn't for them, but there's still ways to, to kind of get that mentality. Um, and so you get to Stanford. How did this, this insane story kind of come, come to be? And, you know, what was your experience with it? Yeah, you, re- you referenced earlier, this is going to be an interesting conversation. I don't, I don't talk about this stuff very much. Um, and a lot of times when I talk about it, I go right back there. So I'm going to apologize from the get-go in case I, you know, start stuttering or, or you know, start saying, um, or you know too much. But I will say it started, I, I went to Stanford, I wrestled there, um, had, a decent, had a decent career, and then stuck around to be an assistant coach. And the first, when I was an assistant coach, this, this man, after practice, this guy comes up to me in the parking lot. And he tells me, he tells me hey, um, you live in the greenhouse condominium complex, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, I live there too. My car broke down. Can you give me a ride? So tells me his name is, is Tony. He's from Brazil. And I give him a ride. And then at the end of the ride, he says, you know, my car is going to be in the shop for a while. Is it possible you can give me more rides? And I said, well, practice is over about 530 or six. And, you know, I get out there, you know, about half an hour after that time, if you're out here, then sure, that's fine with me. And I gave him maybe four or five rides during a two week period. And then the night, this the night, this incident occurred, um, I get a knock, get a knock at my door and it's this guy. And who, and I opened the door, he tells me that he's, and he had told me on the rides before that he was a computer science you know, student at Stanford, but he was also taking English classes because he's from another country. And he just, he told me that he needed help with his English assignment. So I was like, yeah, come on in, um, you know, I'll help you with your English assignment. So I was helping him. And then he tells me, you know, I'm, I'm locked out of my apartment right now or out of my condo right now. And I just need, I just, I'm going to go get a hotel room tonight. And I told him, you know, don't worry about it. We'll try and get your keys. If we can't get your keys, then you can just, you can just stay here. Um, then after that, I had a compression wrestlers come over just to talk. And as they came over, this guy, you know, I'm going to answer the door. This guy makes a beeline for the bathroom and locks himself, locks himself in the bathroom. So these, these freshman wrestlers, one being Tim Kendall, who I think you're going to interview later, yeah. uh, but these freshman wrestlers, I was, you know, I was talking to them for about 45 minutes and then that, that gets overlapped with my friends who, who come over to the condo and they're over for like 45 minutes. So my friends, you know, we're going to go out that night and they're a little uncomfortable because they're like, there's, there's a guy in the bathroom. What's going on here? Um, I said, everything's fine. He's a good guy. You know, everything's not a problem. So my friends are like, well, we want to go out to the bars. Uh, so they said, are you coming or not? So I go to knock on this, knock on this guy's door or on the bathroom door, open it. Um, and he's in there and he's kind of doubled over. And I said, is everything okay? And he's like, no, I just feel sick. Can I just stay here? And you know, I'm not terribly comfortable with that, but I said, I said, Hey, you know, wouldn't it be better if we maybe if we maybe just 
broke into your place. You know, you can, you can be there tonight. And he's like, really, I, I don't feel like I can move right now. Can you just, can you just please let me stay here? So I said, that's fine. I'm going to leave you a blanket, a pillow. You can stay on the couch and just get yourself better. We're going to go out to, we're going to go out to the bars and I'll be back. And I will see you when I come back. So thank goodness I'm not a drinker because um, I had my wits about me that evening, but that's how, that's how everything kind of, kind of starts off. So were you, uh, were you not wondering when he's in the bathroom for an hour and a half, what the heck's going on in there? Are you like any red flags coming up yet? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because if I were to watch like a TV show where this happened, I just say, what an idiot that guy is that let this guy, let this guy stay in his house. But in the situation, you know, I didn't, I didn't think much of it. You know, yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm going to be nice. And if I were in that situation where I was sick in a bathroom, I'd, I'd want someone to let me stay at their house. Of course. Um, anyways, we come back, we come back at like one in the morning and my friend's not terribly comfortable with it. And he's like, I just want to check this thing out make sure it's okay. And it's very much again, like a, like a bad movie. And I open the door and this, with my friend and this guy's got the TV on and he's laying on the couch, but he's got the cover pulled up over his face. So my friend can't really see what he looks like. And you've got the TV light that's shining on him. And I finally convinced my friends all going to be fine. You know, I'll be, I'll be good. Um, I'll see you later. Thanks for, thanks for thinking about me. So I get ready for bed and I go in my room and, you know, lay in my bed and maybe a minute later I hear my door, you know, creaking open very slowly. So I sit up a little bit and I said, Hey, uh, Hey, what's going on? And then he, then he clicks the light on. He's got a, he's got a 22 caliber revolver pointed right at me. And it's a situation where remember it very vividly. And you can see the, you can see the ammunition in the, in the barrel. So um, I started saying, you know, what are you doing here? You know, what's, what's going on? He said, don't worry about it. Just roll over. And I said, what are you doing here? Just, just roll over. So I'm, I'm kind of stuck. There's only one door to my bedroom. It's not a very big bedroom and he's covering that door. So I had to roll over. Um, he stuck his knee in my back and the gun in my, in the back of my neck. And then he started, started tying me up. He tied my, tied my arms behind my back and he tied my feet together. And he, he brought some ribbons with him to do that, but he also took the shoelaces out of my shoes uh, to tie me up. And then he also, he also took some of my nice shirts and ties to tie me up, which kind of made me mad because those things went into evidence later and I didn't get them back. Anyways, um, you know, then he, then he blindfolded me and, and put a pillowcase around my eyes. And then, you know, then I, he let me turn over and, you know, sit up a little bit, but I'm sitting there blindfolded. My hands are binded behind my back and my feet are together, you know, binded together. And then he starts asking me, he starts asking me a bunch of questions like, you know, you know, he's, or excuse me, I start asking him questions like, why are you here? And at the time I was living with Chris Harpel, who's the wrestling coach at Stanford. Um, so part of the, part of the being the assistant coach at Stanford is you got to, you know, get free board in the Bay area at Chris's house. So it worked out, that worked out well for me, but he told, he told me he was there because, you know, this, these, these guys had told him that they need to get some papers from the wrestling coach. And, you know, he said, I have the papers, I have the papers, so it's all good. And then, you know, then I asked him, why do you, why do you have me tied up? He didn't answer that. Um, for about 45 minutes, we're having, we're having a conversation and this is before the internet is big. And he knows quite a bit about my friends, you know, Jimmy Gary, Matt Kano, Ed Medina. He starts, 
starts asking me questions about my friends and where they're from. And I don't know how he knows this information, but it's all starting to become weirder and weirder. Keep going. I okay. Mean, keep going. Jesus. So crazy. So for, for 45 minutes, for 45 minutes, I'm talking to him and, and it's, it's bizarre. Cause at times he would get upset with me. Like earlier that day, I'd given a fresh rest or a ride home. And I guess he was out there and he said, I saw you with that tall, dark haired guy. And he goes, you gave him a ride. He didn't give me a ride. So again, I don't know where this, where this whole thing is going. And then there's times where he was talking calm to me. And that's, you know, that was my thing. I was just trying to, just trying to keep him calm. But then after 45 minutes, you know, I'm, he's, I'm trying, he's asking me like how, how my brother and sister and I could all go to Stanford at the same time with a dad who's a PE teacher. You know, and I'm explaining financial aid to the guy and it just dawns on me that, that, uh, Hey, if I don't stop talking, he's never going to leave. So I finally, finally turned, turned my back to him, or excuse me, and didn't turn my back to him. But I said, you know, I really, you know, I like talking to you. I think you're a nice guy, but right now I'm blindfolded, uh, tied up. You've got a gun and I'm scared. I said, you've got these, you got these papers you said you wanted. Can you just please leave? And he tried to talk to me some more. I said, really, I don't want to talk to you. Can you just please go? And then he gagged me. He stuck a washcloth down my throat um, far enough where it actually elicited a gag reflex and then tied that around my head with another pillowcase. So now before, you know, I'm gagged and before I could see some light, um, but, but now I'm, I'm not seeing any light. And then for the next 45 minutes, for the next 45 minutes, it's kind of quiet in the room. I don't know where he is. Um, but I'll tell you what's going through my head at the time is that, you know, look, if, if I can get my hands free, if I can get my hands free, I'm going to be okay in the situation because when I was younger, my dad had me wrestle blindfolded, you know, so yeah. I'm fine being blindfolded as I think a lot of wrestlers would be, you know, you know, where body parts are if you wrestle. So I'm like, if I can get my hands on this guy, if I can get my hands free and get my hands on him, then um, I can make something happen. Yeah. But at this point, I'm just trying to figure out where he is. Cause I don't know if he's got the gun, if he's in a different room, what's going on. So I finally hear him on one side of the room and I turn my back towards him and start, you know, because I can't talk, I'm using hand signals and my hand signals were, you know, you know, I would tap myself and then say, say, okay, like I'm okay. And I would put my hands in a please, please fashion, say please. And then I'd say, go with my mm -hmm. hands. So I kept doing that. I'm okay, please go. And luckily he figured out what I was trying to say to him. And he's like, no, you're not okay. He goes, I can't, I can't bear to see you like this. And then he sits on the bed next to me. Um, and he just says, you know, Jay, if you just fall asleep, I promise I'll go. Um, so then I pretended to, then I pretended to shiver. You know, I wasn't cold, but you know, I wanted, I wanted my hands out of sight. And again, that's the same thing with wrestling. You've got to find a way, right? You've got to be, you've got to be optimistic about everything. You know, there's, you're going to find, find a way to beat this guy. Um, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking mindset wise. So I shiver and he puts the covers over me and now that's good. Cause now my hands are out of sight. And then he asked me, you know, will it help you sleep if, if I turn the lights off? And to me, that doesn't mean anything because I can't see anything anyways. I'm blindfolded, but I nod. Yeah. You know, I want the lights off because now, now I'm going to be under the covers and the lights are going to be off and he won't be able to see me trying to get my hands undone. So he turns the lights off and then he lays in the bed next to me, which is, you know, that was uh, not a good, not a good feeling. And it certainly, certainly made me go more rapidly and think more rapidly how I'm going to get out of this. Um, so, so it takes me, it takes me about, you know, I, I turn to face him, turn to face him laying in the bed, 
my hands are away from the lights are out under the sheets. And it, it took me about 15 minutes to get my hands undone. And the side story here is that when I was a freshman uh, at Stanford, I was the only small freshman on the traveling squad. So I got, I got picked on on occasion. I was probably a little too lippy too. So, so there was maybe reasons for people to, to do things to me. But um, on a couple of occasions, I got tied up by, by people. One, one time being our assistant coach, Eric Deuce, um, who I never thought it would help me, but, but I, day after this incident happened, I called Deuce and, and thanked him for saving my life. But I can tell you the first time I was tied up um, by my teammates, by my teammates or by coach Deuce was when I kept my hands together. So my wrists, my wrists were flush and he Deuce tied me up and I couldn't get out of it. It took me like an hour. So I started thinking about that. Like next time someone ties me up, I'm gonna keep my wrists apart. So next time, next time Deuce ties me up, I keep my wrists apart and then you've got room to move once he's gone and you can get out of there. So again, never thought I'd be thanking people for tying me up. Uh, but it certainly saved my life, as did the sport of wrestling. So I got my, you know, because of that, I got my hands undone, and I pulled them out in front of me. And now I've got to just locate where he is. I know he's laying on the bed, but I just want to know where his body position is. Yeah. So I kind of, mum I kind of mumble something because I'm gagged, and I mumble, mm, you know, and, and he's, he's like, what? So now I know where he's at, and I just want to make sure. So I mumbled one more time, and he's like, what is it? And then I jumped him. Um, with my hands. And as a wrestler, you know, I'm going to say this again, thank goodness I'm not a tennis player, you know, and thank goodness I was a wrestler because that's, that's what saved my life. And thank, thank goodness, thank goodness I grew up, um, you know, wrestling blindfolded. Again, never thought there'd be a direct correlation, but there is. Um, you so know, when you grab them, went, are you feeling like where the gun's at in case his finger's on it? I mean, can you feel the so gun? So what I did was, what I did was I reached for him and then went right to his wrists. Yeah. And again, with wrestling, you can tell if someone's gripping something or not, you know, if you've, if you've got their wrist and he wasn't gripping anything and he's yelling, I've got the gun, I've got the gun, but I knew he, I knew he wasn't because I didn't feel that tension in his, in his mm -hmm. wrist. So plus, and I thought for a split second, maybe he does have the gun, but I'm like, screw this. This is my only, this is my only chance. Not like I'm going to let go right now. So I went, I went off the wrist with my right hand to the back of his head and jammed it. There's a, there's a chair next to my bed. So I jammed it between the chair next to my bed and the bed. And then we fell, we fell on the floor. Um, he's on his back. I'm on top. We're face to face to each other, maybe a few inches away. And um, once, Feet once still I got tied, head, head still covered at this point. Correct. Correct. So once I got him on his back, then it was, I got to get inside tie and I got to pull his arms towards his body because he's, that gun could be anywhere. If he reaches and grabs that thing, then, you know, I'm a, I'm a goner. So once I got him, once I felt I got him pretty secure, um, I got, I got, I got the blindfold, I got the blindfold off, but it's still, still very dark in there. And it's very hard to see, which again, I've got the advantage in that situation. Cause this guy, there's no way, there's no way he trained wrestling and there's no way he had the dad that I had. Right. Um, so this is, and this is weird too. Um, you know, the first thing I could think of to do, cause I, I'm thinking, I just gotta, I just gotta get this guy and, you know, get him to stop writhing around so much. And the third, first thing I thought to do is double fish hook him, which this, the story behind that is we MMA had just started, just started at the time. And we were having a discussion in the team van and I was talking to Todd Sermon, you know, the late Todd Sermon, who is mm -hmm. an all American and the Midlands champion for, for Stanford. Um, 
And we're saying, what would you do in an MMA fight? And Todd's like, I would, I would totally double fish hook somebody, you know, and double fish hooking is taking your two index fingers and putting them, it's yeah. kind of, it's putting them inside someone's mouth. And it's, it's kind of what big brothers do to little brothers. Um, and I remember Todd saying, I double fish hook somebody and me telling Todd, you know what, that's stupid. You know, I've never, that's, I'd never do that. And then all of a sudden I'm in the situation. That's what I was, that's what I was doing. Um, but he definitely stopped writhing around so much. And then after that, he's just, like I said, he's reaching for things. I'm trying to grab inside tie and control him. And, and, uh, every time I could, I'd hit him and every time I could, I'd headbutt him. And I'd never yeah. been in a real, real fight before, but thank goodness I'd been in, you know, hundreds of practice fights. So, and it was kind of nice to add the, at the time to add the hitting and the headbutting. So, so I, I do that. And the worst part of it is he's trying to push away from me and, and I've got my feet are still tied and he's pushing off the binds that are between my feet and it hurt like a son of a gun, but you know, and, and I will say this too. I, I had another assistant coach named Mike Schmidlin who, you know, Schmidlin, if you've never heard of him, he's, he's, I think he still has a career record for wins and pins at Midlands. He went, he went to that tournament for over a decade, um, kept wrestling and he is, he is wow. the toughest person I know. And Schmidlin, Schmidlin, he, he, would, he lives in our area at Stanford and he used to come into wrestling practice. And I remember, you know, everyone, when he would walk in, everyone would try and hide, not make eye contact with him because, because he's, he's so tough. And if you wrestle Schmidlin, he's going to hurt you. So basically if he beats you, he's going to hurt you, not mm-hmm. injure you. He's going to hurt you and, and make you uncomfortable so he can pin you. And if you beat him, he's going to hurt you. You just know it's going to come. <laughs> so, so for me, for me, it used to be, I used to be the guy that didn't want to make eye contact with him, but pretty soon he's like, you're my guy. You're around my weight. I'm trained for Midlands. Um, you're going with me regardless. And it just made me tough. At some point I realized, you know, this is going to hurt. So I might as well enjoy it and, you know, fight, fight through this thing. And, you know, it got to the point where when Schmidlin used to show up to the room, um, I'd get super excited. You know, I get to wrestle with Schmidlin today. This is awesome. So those things go back to me when, when I, this guy's pushing on my binds, you know, because I've dealt with, I've dealt with pain before I'm, you know, I'm a wrestler and I've wrestled Mike Schmidlin and it just, it just elevated me to a different, different level. So didn't let that bother me. And for 20 minutes, we're fighting on the side of the bed. He pushes down till we get to the base of the bed. And then finally to the other side of the bed and he grabs a, he grabs a phone cord. And I thought well, that's a pretty good idea. I'll take that from him. And I wrapped it around his neck, um, held them down with my, with my two elbows and then use my left hand to um, grab the phone and call 911. And that's interesting there. Cause I, this is Palo Alto. So this kind of stuff doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And they, they certainly didn't believe me. So I was, you know, and the person person says, we'll send officers right away, but why, why is this guy here? And I started saying, he said, said something about these papers he wanted from the wrestling coach. And then they're like, well, what does that mean? So I said, you know, what does that mean? And I kind of grabbed him and he's like, well, Stanford's a rich university and they have, they have all this money and the wrestling team has all this money. And I kind of lost it on him. Cause you know, I was like, we're a self-funding program. And you know, we're, you know, so it'd be an interesting police tape to listen to. Anyways, um, smokes. police officers get to the door in, in just like seven minutes. And then, then they say, we need supervisor's approval for them to knock down the door. I said, I'm giving you my approval. I'm in the back room. I can't get up. I'm tied up. If there's, there's a gun somewhere, um, just knock down the door. And they said, well, we can't do that until you know, our supervisor tells us we can. And it took about 20 minutes for them to get approval. But 20 finally, minutes. 20 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, and at that time, and again, glad I'm a wrestler because, 
you know, I can, I can deal with a lot more than other people can. I'm going to, I'm going to say that, you know, like Dave Schultz said, there's wrestlers and civilians, um, wrestlers can, wrestlers can deal with a lot of, a lot of pain, whereas a civilian can't thank goodness. This other guy was a civilian. So, um, you know, I've, I've got him secured and he's kind of, he's kind of out of, out of, he's got to be exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, beat the shit out of him for 20 minutes and I mean, uh, just, I can't even imagine. So the cops walk in, what happens then? Yeah, they came in guns blazing. They were shocked. And you know, like this is, and back rooms all messed up. There's blood, blood on the walls. It's gotta be just, and I'm going to quote Joe DeSena. This is like a scene out of Pulp Fiction. You know, you got a guy half, half tied up and, you know, beating up this, beating up this other guy. Um, but then they, they hauled him out of there and, and, uh, you know, we went around, went around the room. This, this guy, you know, had, had found a knife in the house and had brought it in the back room. And, you know, it, it basically looks like he was, he was a stalker, which is strange to me because there's a lot better, you know, looking people and, you know, in the world that this guy could go after. So I'm not quite sure what was going on, but I will say super glad I had wrestling. And I will also say this, and this is, you know, this is me not being humbled, but it's something I'm proud of. Um, but the next day, the next, the next day, this police officer came over and, you know, she was asking how I was and, and things like that. And she was dating one of the guys on the EMT crew that, uh, that picked this guy up. And she said, she said, she checked on me and I, you know, that I was okay and stuff like that. And, and then I said, oh, and then she said, you know, I, I got to tell you, she goes, the guys on the EMT crew, you're like a cult hero for them. And I just asked, you know, why is that? And she said, because all of them said they'd never seen anyone get beat up that badly by just one person. You know, so, I so I'll, too. I'll take it. I'll take yeah. it. Um, but let's, let's go back to the theme of the podcast, you know, but where am I without wrestling in that situation? And again, where am I, where am I without my dad? So um, that's, you know, wrestling, wrestling changed my life, but wrestling literally saved my life too. Saved your life. And there's a lot that comes after we're going to get to just to put a bow on this for people who are wondering what inspired the sicko to do all this? And like, whatever happened with that, just to put a bow on that end of it. You know, um, there's a long story that I won't get into, but, but he was, he was a stalker. Um, and they went to his, they went, you know, and interviewed him at the hospital, I guess, between times when he was vomiting blood again. Yeah. Strangely, it makes me feel good about myself. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, he, he, I had been getting, I'd been getting mail for, over a year. And it was really bizarre, bizarre books and, and things like that. Um, and I just thought it was wrestlers on the team that were messing with me. So I was, I had them all and I was hanging on to him until I found out who it was. And then I was going to stick all that stuff in their locker. Um, but you know, when the detective was going around the room, they saw this big stack of books and I was like, Oh gosh, he's going to think I'm crazy. So I said, that stack of books, wrestlers are sending me that stuff. And that's, that's not my stuff. And he's like, are you sure? So the detective goes and interviews this guy at the hospital. And, you know, he admitted he had been sending me that stuff. He had met me two weeks prior to this incident, but I'd been getting that stuff for about a year. So um, he had, he had been sending that stuff and they went to his, they went to where he lived and he lived in the, in the corner of this, this apartment. And he basically had a futon and a picture of me on the wall, which again, I, I don't understand. Um, but it's, it's all like, it's all like living a movie and I'm just super happy that I didn't know about this stuff for a long time. Um, I think there's some people that get stalked that are, you know, constantly 
nervous about their stock or I didn't know any of this was going on. And my, my incident only lasted, you know, a really intense three hours as opposed to extending out. Uh, I will say he went to, he went to prison. Um, and part of it's because he's, he's was from Peru and one of my dad's wrestlers dads. So my dad coaches high school wrestling. His wrestler's dad was the assistant to the attorney general in charge of immigration. Mm. So he, he got in this thing. His name's Don Reno. He's a fantastic guy, former, former wrestler as well. And he, he got in there. Um, this guy got sentenced to eight years in prison for kidnapping and false imprisonment. And then Don Reno made sure that this guy, this guy was deported directly after this happens. And if he ever comes back in the country, um, then he gets put away again. So wow. That, that's the bow. Oh my God. So in the days after this, how did your background with discipline and wrestling help with the mental side of this and getting over it. And it's because that to me is, you know, a, a big part of any traumatic situation is the days afterwards. And, and in a very, very, very small scale, you could say, Hey, you went to nationals as a college wrestler, you didn't place and you're depressed for months after this has nothing to do with that. But how'd you get over some of the mental stuff afterwards? Are there any routines you used? Um, it was tough. I'll, I'll be honest. Emotionally, it was very, very difficult afterwards. If you're, if you're that close to, if you're that close to death, um, you know, it's a whole, whole different scene and it, you know, and you can, you can sit there and, and wallow and pity about it. Like I almost died. And what if it happens again and get yourself all nervous or you can, or you can be the person that's like, okay, um, that happened and I'm still going to deal with this emotionally, but how can I use this to make myself better? It's just like, you know, if you lose your, your reference, if you lose a tournament um, and you didn't wrestle well, you can wallow in pity and just feel sorry for yourself or, and that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. You're, you're naturally going to do that because emotions are, emotions are things we have. Um, but then you got to say, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to fix this? And how can I use it to make, make me a better wrestler? In this case, you know, I was dealing with some pretty, pretty decent emotions, but I was also doing some soul searching. And if you're, if you're someone that's gone through a near death experience, you're going to really start thinking about what your life's about. And along with, along with coaching wrestling at the time I was working in an advertising agency. And that's what I thought my career was going to be. I was going to go into advertising because it sounded like fun. But then I started soul searching and saying to myself, you know, is this something I really want to do? Am I really producing for society? And, you know, I had to determine that, no, I wasn't, you know, I was making, I was making um, like the last thing I did, I was making a menu for Armadillo Willie's uh, barbecue restaurant. And I was trying to find Armadillo. <laughs> so I was yeah. saying to myself, you know, that's, that's not that, that's not that powerful. So at that time, that's when I said, I'm going to, I'm going to change, I'm going to change my life here. And I'm going to, I'm going to go get my, get my teaching credentials. So I started applying to grad school after that um, to get my teaching credentials. Cause what I, what I decided that I wanted to do is I wanted to do for other, for other kids, you know, for other, for students and, you know, other young people, what my dad did for me, you know, how to, how to, you know, learn to push yourself and how to, you know, how to deal with that stuff and, you know, how to coach someone through that. So again, the emotions were there and it took, it took a while. I can say it it took several months for me to say to myself, actually, I didn't think about the whole incident for, for 24 hours there. That's amazing. Um, So I thought about it quite a bit, but I also wanted to use it as, as a way to make myself better. Well, just think of all the kids who you've impacted now through teaching and through the Spartan program. It's, it's really incredible to think about. So you, you have this horrible experience 
you use it for the better. Another wrestling skill. I love that. You become a teacher. Take us to the point of when you meet Joe DeSena and how the next part of your life kind of changed. That's a crazy story too. Um, and I think I've referenced this before, but my life is kind of like sweeps weeks. Everything's fine for a while. Then all of a sudden something crazy, something crazy happens. Um, and the Joe DeSena story was another, another example of that. Um, for me, I was, when I, I started teaching, I always tried to bring in the performance character piece. And again, this is what my dad, what my dad was teaching me and, and coaching me through things like how to be more optimistic, how to be more committed and stuff like that. So I wanted that to be a key piece of my, of my teaching. And as a social studies teacher, I would insert those things into, into lessons. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. Then, then I got kind of voluntold to be the assistant principal one year. So I'd been teaching for several years at, at this school. And then, and then the principal came by and basically said, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be the assistant principal. So great. I'll take it. You know, it sounds like a path. Maybe I can, maybe I can help more kids that mm -hmm. way. So like, I'll, I'll do it. So my first task as an assistant principal was to, was to, um, come up with some sort of, some sort of presentation for the staff and it was open-ended. I could do whatever I wanted. So I was trying to think of what I was going to do. And I turn on, can't think of anything. So I turn on 60 minutes sports and there's this, there's a segment on there called, called races from hell. And it's about obstacle course racing and highlighted is Spartan race and this Joe DeSena and they're interviewing him. And he's like, he's like, well, you know, people are kind of getting tired of flatland marathons. It's, it's long and boring. You can't get that many people do it. Um, so for us, we're going to make, we're going to make a race more exciting. We're going to toss military style obstacles in the middle there. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be difficult. People can overcome it. And at the end, they're going to hug you at the finish line. And to me, that made total sense because for a lot of kids, um, their, their school year is just one flatland marathon with a worksheet, you know, tests, yep. lectures, and it's, it's lame. So I said, why don't we do this obstacle course model at our school? And, and that obstacle course model would be, yeah, you got to do the lecture every so often, but give some sort of open-ended project where you can have, have kids really test themselves and, you know, think about it. And I was like, and at, while you're doing that, they're going to fail, you know, eventually they're eventually going to get it done, but they're going to fail through it. And you got to be able to coach them through that. So I'm like, sweet, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show this clip of Joe talking in my PowerPoint presentation. I started up and, you know, I kind of say why school should be like, like an obstacle course race. And then no joke, the very next day, um, my friend sends me an email and his email says, and by the way, this is the same friend that told me in eighth grade that my dad was a green beret, you know? So oh, his, name, wow. his, his name's Nick Morris, great guy, but I hadn't talked to him for about 15, 20 years. And I get an email from him. Nick lives, Nick lives out and he works in New York and he lives in Connecticut. Amazing guy. Um, and Nick is like, I met this guy named Joe DeSena. He's the CEO and founder, founder of Spartan Race. And he said, I, I told him your story about your stocking story and about your dad, you know, training you. And he goes, uh, Joe wants to meet you. And I wrote Nick back and I was like, this is insane because I just learned about this guy yesterday and I'm doing a PowerPoint presentation on him. Anyways, you know, and that just that, to me is so bizarre, that whole thing, because it was like OCR, obstacle course, course races, where in its infancy, you just happen to see something. And then the next day you get a call that the guy went, it just to me is un, it's so insane. Well, to me, I, I think there's more than luck going on. Yeah. Um, and if you, I don't know, it, it, there's, 
there's, you can call it fate or whatever you want to call it, but it just, it just seemed a little too serendipitous, you know, for, for things to happen. Um, so eight days later, there's a race, Spartan race in Monterey, which, which again, I, I didn't even know was there, but Joe's like, Hey, I'm going to be out there in Monterey, which is about an hour and a half away from my house. He goes, you want to meet up and talk? So yeah, you know, I, so I go out there, I meet Joe. Um, and, and he talks to me is Joe and his wife, Courtney, who they're just amazing people. Mm -hmm. And they sat me down. Joe wants to hear the story. So I, I tell him the story that I, I told you probably went in a little bit more depth. Um, not sure why, uh, <laughs> but maybe I was, I don't know, but, um, at the end of it, at the end of it, Joe's like, that's crazy. And then he's like, so he goes, you mentioned your email, something about, you know, how, what I do, you know, deals with education. So I get into that and I start telling him, and I basically told him, you know, what you could go around and make the circuit at, ed, at schools and talk about how, what you do applies to education. I said, you'd make a killing. Um, and he's like, you know, it'd be interesting to have an educational component to our brand. So then, and this is, I won't get too deep into this, but then Joe knows what he's doing, but he's like, you know, he goes, this is a real interesting conversation. I want to keep it going, but um, you know, you can, I've got to go answer some emails for half an hour. You can, you can hang out here. Um, you can check out some obstacles. He goes, you can run the race if you want to. And so I said, well, I'll run the race. And at the time I was wearing khakis and a long sleeve cotton shirt and not running shoes, but I'm like, yeah, I'm a wrestler. You know, it's, it's three miles, three miles that I saw on the races from hell segment. I can pull that off. You know, it's, it was my wife's birthday that day, but I'm like, I'll get this done. And then I'll talk to Joe and then I'll get out of here and be back for my wife's birthday dinner. So I, I get up there and, you know, Joe, Joe gets me the race. And if you've ever been to a Spartan race, there's about, there's about 40 people in, in the pen and they're, they're right there at the starting line. And well, I know you've done Spartan races. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a hype guy at the front. So Joe introduced me to the hype guy. And then the hype guy basically says with his microphone, everyone, this is Jay Jackson. He's a personal friend of Joe DeSanta. He's the guy to beat in this heat. And there's all these people with <laughs> face paint on their shirts off. And they're like, yeah, you know, and I was, I was a little nervous, you know, in my khakis. So I, I jump in the middle of this group of people and they blow the horn and off I go. Uh, and we're about three miles into the race. And I was like, you know, and this is where I say Joe knew exactly what he was doing. Um, we're about three miles in the race and I'm kind of looking for the finish line because I'm hurting. Um, and my feet are kind of dying a little bit. Um, so yeah, your wife's birthday coming up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, so we're about three miles in, I'm looking for the finish line, but instead of the finish line, I see the sign off the side of me that says 10 miles to your ice cold Sierra Nevada. So I turn to the guy next to me and I'm like, how long is this race? He's like, it's a beast, man. And I was like, what's a beast. He's like, it's the 13 miles. It's a beast. You know, so this race, instead of being the three miles, was a 13 mile deal, but it did, it did push the point home for me that, that, um, you know, first of all, when you're going through something difficult, people are really cool to you. You know, people aren't going to put you down just like a wrestling team. You, everyone knows we're going through something difficult. So, so let's all, let's all help each other out through it. Um, and it was, it was hard and I was able to overcome it. And at the end I was really pleased and I was like, this is what I, this is what I want to do with education. So Joe finds me, by the way, my, my phone was lit up like a Christmas tree, you know, a text from my wife, you know, <laughs> where are you? Are you coming back? You know, are you in a ditch somewhere? And I kind of had to think, yeah, you know, kind of, yeah. you know, at, at points I was in a ditch. Um, but, but at the end, Joe's like, can you, can you do this? Can you make an educational, you know, part of the Spartan race? So that was, that was it. And 
I had I mentioned I talked before about you know I'd always brought this performance character in, um, but now it was me up to me to make it more concrete and organized. So what I've done since then, and that was about eight years ago, is created this curriculum. And with performance character, it's it's personal to the individual. You know, that there's you can't just say there's not a one size fits all thing where you can say this is how hard you need to work or this is how you overcome you overcome anxiety. You know, it's going to work different for different people, but these are things we don't talk about. It's just like wrestling, you know, wrestling, you can ask someone how, how much, how much is it physical and how much is it mental? And people are going to say at least half, maybe more, you know, mental, mm -hmm. you know, some people are gonna say like 90% mental, mm -hmm. um, but how much time do we spend on the mental part in, in the practice room? And the answer is we don't, we kind of want, we kind of want kids to, you know, figure it out on their own, which is it works for some, but it's, it's not that intentional, not, not that practical. Um, I wanted to come up with a very intentional way to have people have these important conversations. So what I've got is a series of tools and they're basically diagrams, very simple diagrams that, that a coach or a teacher can use to have these very important discussions about things like grit, you know, uh, courage, um, you know, quitting. It's like optimism in there, like, a, like positivity, I guess, would you say? For sure. Yeah. For sure. And, and these, these diagrams are coupled with questions and obviously the coach can use the questions I give, but the coach can use more questions based on their, based on the grade level, um, age or the situation. And then you're going to have this, dis you're going to have these important discussions about these things and ask kids, what are you going to do? And if they don't quite know, then you, they're talking to other kids about, this is what I do. And this is, this works for me. So they can come up with a good, good plan with these, these things. Now, I will say that this, this program is an add-on to a pre-existing program. So it works really well with the wrestling team because you're, you can talk about these things all day and say, I would do this and this is how hard I would work and stuff like that, but you don't really know how you're gonna do it until you're tested on it. Mm -hmm. So for example, I've got, I've got a, you know, a diagram on quitting and have a lot of questions about you know, how far should you go? Why do you quit? You know, when do you quit? And then after that, if you're using that with the wrestling team, then you can, you know, have a drill where you put someone on their back, someone else on top, and let's just see. I want to see if you're going to do what you said and not give up or if you're going to keep going. But it, again, I'm being very intentional about it. In a school setting, you know, I teach, I teach world history. Um, I always give this example, but I do it every year where I show them, a, show them a diagram on comfort zones, ask them a bunch of questions about comfort zones. They come up with their opinions on it. And then I test them on it. And I test in my class, I test them by having them do a 10 act interpretive dance of the French revolution, which is out outside the comfort zone of many kids. Um, and some of them may fail. Some may do well in it, but I'm teaching, I'm teaching the history. And at the same time, I'm teaching the performance character trait, which is, you know, if you're going to get better, you got to get outside your comfort zone. So um, wow. that's, that's what the program, that's what the program is all about. And how, that's just incredible to me. I, there's so many questions. I guess one of them would be, and you kind of already answered it, but for folks who aren't in, like kids who don't wrestle um, or they don't do any sports and they just don't have it in them, they're not going to be an athlete ever. Is there a way to teach these performance characteristics still? Because a lot of us feel that the only way you get those is by going through the fire, right? But right. you just kind of shared one example of something as, as unique as a dance to get them out of their comfort zone. So are there other things you're doing for the, the non-athletes out there to get them to adapt some of these skills? Yeah. And, you know, with wrestling, the most important thing about characteristic of wrestling is how hard it pushes you. I was never going to push myself as hard as what wrestling did for me. Right. Right. Um, and 
you know, I would, if, if I were president, well, if I were a dictator, I'd force every, every kid to wrestle. And that way you're going to find out so much more about yourself. Um, other kids that don't wrestle, you got to find, you've got to find ways to, again, discuss these things and then test them on it. So we've got like obstacle course racing, for example, is those are two very similar tribes, uh, wrestling and obstacle course racing. There's a lot of overlap between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, just want to, and because, because they're both, they're both these little tribes of people that everyone thinks are so crazy um, because they're pushing themselves that hard. But if you're in the tribe, then you understand why you're pushing yourself that hard. So at our school, we have on weekends, we have a group come in called Mission Peak Spartans, and they set up an obstacle course for us every Saturday and Sunday that kids can have access to. Unfortunately, most kids don't come, but they would learn, they would learn something about themselves. Now, I will say it again in, in school, like in my class, there's different ways to test them. You know, it could be something as simple as a, as a presentation they've got to give in front of class. Um, it could be, it could be a situation where, you know, I've got, I've got one on, I've got one on quitting. And then typically after I give the diagram on quitting, I'm going to give them a primary source, which is, you know, from the 1800s and it's got some big words and some forsooth in it. And I just want to see if, if kids are going to quit when they see that first big word, or if they're going to try and stay in that loop and, you know, work and figure this thing out. And then you can talk about it. If, if, and kids can understand, like I quit, I quit when I saw the first word or I pushed through this thing, which is going to make me, which is going to make me better. So, so when you talk about some of those fears or focus areas, you have quitting, what are some of the other ones that are, that are kind of core to your, to your training there? So there's, I, I've got different core traits like grit, commitment, optimism, you know, when I set this thing up and these are, these are aligned with, with Joe's vision of what it takes to be, what it takes to be a Spartan, he says, but yep. you, know, you could also say, you could also say a wrestler. Um, but if you're talking, if you're talking with, with, um, you know, fear and stuff like that, I, I've got one diagram, basically fear. We, we tend to judge as a bad thing. Right. And, yep. but fear is, fear is something, fear is something that's natural and it's necessary. It actually pumps us up with adrenaline and it does that. So we can either fight or run away from the thing that is, you know, causing, causing stress. Mm-hmm. So if you think about fear negatively, and I want kids to understand this, like they're, Every diagram I have just kind of says you're in control of this thing. You can you can control you know the outcome or you can control how you deal with this thing. Um, so with fear, if you look at it negatively, like oh my gosh, I'm going to lose this match, or oh my, you know this guy's going to beat me, or it's going to be people are going to put it up in YouTube. It's going to be so horrible, you know, as I get beat. Then that turns into anxiety, which is which is a huge issue, which which is something that we all deal with at the beginning. But if you think positively about fear, um, then you're going to be like man. This is going to be fun. This is going to be awesome and exciting. And it turns into excitement. So, you know, fear is, again, fear is something, fear is something we need and fear makes our life exciting. Like, like skydiving, skydiving without fear is jumping from a plane, right? Right. A roller coaster without fear is just you going on a cart and being like, this is super boring. Um, in fact, there's a woman that was born without, she didn't have fear because her brain, there's some, some problem with her brain. And all the reports on her was she was just bored out of her mind all the time. Um, so here's, wow. here's going to make life exciting, but you're going to have to deal with that. I've heard a lot of really good wrestlers talk about, yeah, I have fear before every match. And sometimes I go to the anxiety, but they find a way to find a way to turn it into excitement. So that's another, that's another core. Man, there's just so many, uh, so many kids who could benefit from this. And I know, you know, that it, because you, you meet a lot of 
kids, not so much for me anymore, but when I used to coach, they just don't have a sense of, of confidence in themselves or just, uh, you know, that's a big thing. Um, and, and obviously lack of confidence means you're fearing a lot of things, right? So how do you, how do you get people just to believe in themselves or to have a good handshake or, or a sense of purpose, you know? And so does that parlay into any of this at all? It does. It does. But the, the truth is that you can't like tell them this is what you need to do. Yeah. They've got to, they've got to construct that knowledge themselves, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you've got to be, you've got to be put in the situation where you're going to have to, you know, deal with it. Like, like I've, I've had kids that I've coached in wrestling that you can tell they're nervous wrecks before, before the match. And I've got other kids that are excited with a kid that's a nervous wreck, you know, Hey, let's, let's look at this diagram. What are some things you're going to do? And it's, it's good to have group discussions with this diagram because the kids that do a good job with it are going to say, this is what I do where, and it can give other kids. It actually has the kids grow together and it can give them ideas on how they can better themselves. But the truth of the matter is they're going to have to be the one that is in control of it and makes the decision themselves. I'm just trying to give them, you know, educated, help them make educated decisions about that. And I will say this, I will say this too. And, you know, I don't know if you want to get into this yet or not, but just kind of wrap up, wrap up my story. Um, but like, I thought that I understood these concepts, but the good thing about, you know, Joe, the Senna is, and Spartan race is it introduced me to, it introduced me to a lot of like amazing people that run these ultra marathons and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have these outliers plus, you know, I'm working with beat the streets with this, with this material. And I get to talk to some really high level wrestlers and coaches and stuff. Um, and these people are outliers. So I want to, I want to learn from them. So I'm using these diagrams and asking those questions and they're coming up with, they're coming up with ideas that I never thought of. This is how, this is how I deal with that. And, you know, again, I made the diagrams and stuff, but I didn't really understand them. I don't, I still don't think I fully understand them. Um, but people outliers were trying, were giving me really good, really good ideas and on, on what to practice and stuff like that when it comes to optimism and courage and commitment and things like that. Um, and after a while I was like, okay, if I, if I have another challenge, this is how I want to deal with it. And lo and behold at our, you know, weekend, our weekend ops course training, you know, if, if you want kids to show up, you better model it yourself. So I, I go out there all the time. Um, I was, I was on the monkey bars and, and, um, started feeling all woozy and weird. And it turns out, turns out I was having a stroke, you know? So what I had was an AVM, which is a, it's a cluster of blood vessels that you're born with in your brain. And, and it just, it's going to go off at some point. Mine chose, you know, two and a half years ago to two and a half years ago to go off. So, so was it painful when that happened or how did you know you were experiencing it? Yeah. You know, I didn't know. Cause my assumption was that my face would droop if it was a stroke and it would be painful, um, but it wasn't painful at all. In fact, it was, I, you know, I guess I would, I would liken it to just being at one with the universe. You know, it's, it was, it's, bizarre. I don't want it to happen again. Let's just be honest, yeah. but I didn't, I didn't really care what people were saying, you know, because I just wanted to be, be there and be in this state of being, I didn't know where my body began and ended. It was just super weird. Um, but it was when I, when I started thinking to myself, you know, gosh, this isn't normal. Um, that's when I started getting a little nervous, like something, something might be going on here, but then I drift back into not caring anymore. Um, but my entire right side was paralyzed and, um, you know, got, carted off, carted off to the hospital and was in the ICU. Tough part was, you know, first being the ICU, I have two, I have two boys and they're not used to seeing me like this. And they're seeing me all, they're walking past room after room of people that are just in dire straits. And then I'm all hooked up to all this stuff, you know? So 
And at that point I was like, you know, you can, you can feel sorry for yourself again, or you can be like, here's a challenge. Let's go, you yeah. know? And again, God bless my dad and wrestling, you know, to give me and to give me those, those things. And I was like, all right. And I, I also was able to talk to a bunch of people about how I wanted to take on a challenge. And I was like, this is a great opportunity uh, for me to deal with that. And it was, you know, I was in, I was in the hospital for about three weeks, obviously not in ICU for that long. Three maybe, weeks is a long time though for a stroke. That's well, it was, it was all the rehab from, from the paralysis. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've got all my, I've got all my motion back and everything's good. I'm actually get to wrestle again. Wow. Um, so, so it's, and, and they're able to do brain surgery on me and take out, you know, take out this AVM. So, so I'm, I should be smooth sailing for a while. Um, but, but, uh, you know, right. so when you told me this story for the, for the first time and for folks who are listening, I know you're just blown away at the, the number of things we've covered here, but specific to the stroke incident, I remember you telling me the first time you're on the playground, you have it happen and you're in the hospital and you kind of already alluded to this, but they told you what happened. You're like, good. Like I get to, I get to really put this stuff to the test, you know, because as a, as an instructor, you were probably feeling like, man, I know how to do this stuff. I've been teaching it. I got it down, but now it's, Hey, your life's on the line. Let's see if you can actually do it now. And so you, your reaction to that was ex excitement as you alluded to. Right. You know, and it's not easy. It's not, it's not easy to get there. And, and I had my doubts. We all do. Right. You know, you're going to even have those doubts, but I'm like, nah, this is how I want to, this is how I want to deal with this. It's just like, it's just like, well, and you're, you're right. When I was in the ICU, this much too young looking doctor came in and he's like, Hey, you had a major stroke. Um, this is going to be a long and difficult process to get your, to get your, you know, feeling back in your right side. And, you know, at that point I was just pumping myself up and like, let's go, you know, I got this. Let's, yeah. let's make this, let's make this happen. Um, I also say like when I had the brain surgery, I was, they told me I was having brain surgery as, as, as my wife was driving me in a car, I couldn't drive at the time. Um, and they called me up and said, you're gonna have brain surgery. Immediately those negative thoughts came in. Like, what if I, what if I die? Brain surgery is very difficult. Like, so for me, I had to, had to work through those things by every time I'd have a negative thought, like, like what if they mess up and I'm paralyzed for life? I had to say two, two positive thoughts. Like these doctors, these doctors are the best in the world. And once I get this thing out of here, it's all done. And, you know, to be honest, and I hate to use this word, but I was excited for the surgery that morning. Mm. I was like, let's go. And I will say at the end of my stint at the rehab hospital, they, I got out of there a little bit early. They were planning on keeping me there for about four and a half weeks. Um, but but uh, I had, had a couple of residents and a, a couple, you know, doctors come in and just basically ask, what did you do? You know, how did, how did you do this? Now, part of it was because I'm not the oldest stroke person yeah. that got a stroke and that, you know, certainly helped out, but yeah, I really believe, I really believe it's, it's all the training I got and the, the optimism that comes with, that comes with challenging yourself with, with the sport like wrestling. I'll also say to wrap this with a nice, nice bow. Um, my parents flew into town at the end of, at the end of my, um, you know, my, time because they they wanted to they wanted to see me um and my dad you know never told me this but in his head he he's like i just want to see him walk you know i want to see my kid walk so when i when i got home when i got home i i had a cane but i was like i don't i don't really need this um and i walked home and it's it's one of the two times i saw my dad cry you know i i uh 
you know, he cried, he cried when I won a state title, um, which is, which is very emotional for me too, because I was wrestling for my dad, because he's such an amazing guy. Um, and then, you know, saw him cry at that time too. So, um, and again, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's thank wrestling for all that. Oh. I don't, I doubt, I doubt I'd be that, I doubt I'd be that close with my dad without the sport. You know, it, it helps you, helps you understand each other and, and really, you know, understand hardships and, and, you know, supporting people. Thank you for sharing that. Now it's your, I mean, we can all say, yeah, you're right. And we kind of know what you mean, but not really until you've been there on, you know, death's door in a sense of, Hey, you're going to have a serious operation. How long between the stroke and the surgery? So that was about, it was a few months. Was so a few you're months. sitting there at home out of commish, um, you know, trying to get yourself back. But really, the rehab wasn't even starting until after the surgery, essentially? Or were you rehabbing during that time leading up to it? I was rehabbing during that time. In okay. fact, I wasn't supposed to go jogging, but, you know, don't tell my wife this. Maybe she won't listen. Um, but, but yeah, I would, I would kind of push myself and I'd say I'd go for walks, but then I'd start jogging. And I could, took a, maybe four headers in my neighborhood. And strange thing, strange thing is- Because you that, fell over from the running? Yeah. I, you know, oh I couldn't pick up, I couldn't pick up my foot that high and I'd, hit like hit yeah. like some some crack you know and strangely it was always in front of it was always in front of somebody it was like a couple <laughs> people a couple people working on a car and i'd have to bite it in front of them but but again i i think you can do a lot more than you than you think you can you know and if you've gone like i said i i wouldn't before wrestling started i don't i wouldn't think i'd be able to make it through a practice you know and before college i don't think i'd make it through a college practice but you you start you know gaining that gain that belief and you can do a lot more than you think you can. Um, again, through, through just challenge and, and people helping you out and support. It's just amazing how, to your point exactly, the body is insanely resilient. It could run hundreds of miles. We've seen it. Um, it can do a lot of things. And I wanted to ask you, do you think the mind puts all these doubts and, and trepidations in our mind to protect us? Or like, why does the mind do that? Right before we're getting ready to do something that you know, it's going to be rewarding and you only get that great feeling after a difficult task. But right before you start, the mind's always like, let's not do this. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think because the mind is programmed to quit. You know, that's, that's, that's what's happening. If, because if you did something and you never quit, um, then you'd perish, you'd die. Mm -hmm. Like if I went out for a run and I never stopped, um, then I would, I would sure. die. So your, your brain is, pre-programmed to do that. And I think, I think back when we really had hardships, like in caveman days, yeah. um, you're going to, you're going to try and quit as soon as you can, you know, so you, because life is super hard. So you want to take, take breaks and stuff like that, but we don't have, our life is not as tough as it is then, but we still have the, the quit in us. Um, but I can say if you can, if you can, there's, there's a point where you're going to have to quit everything you start, mm -hmm. you know, without a doubt. Um, and there's reasons, there's reasons for quitting, but if you can, your brain's going to tell you to quit, you know, every step along the way. And if you can kind of push past that and realize where your, where your limit is, then you're going to be a lot better. Um, but you and I, you and I both know this, that, that where, where I stop, there's always more that I can do. You know, I've never gotten to the point. I've never worked out hard enough where I passed out, um, you know, or done something where I've, I've died, you know, thankfully. Right. But I mean, I know what you're saying though. It's like, there's there's reasons to stop and there's reasons not to. And obviously there's, you know, there's, there's limits to that, but it's just amazing to see you living all this out. And just to, just to wind down here after the surgery, 
your, your father's there. It's an emotional moment. What, what have you been up to since you're, you're still a teacher uh, for folks who aren't watching this uh, Jay's in his classroom right now, but are you back to being an assistant principal or did you change another course after that surgery? No, I, I changed course because, well, it was, it was actually before the surgery, I changed course. Uh, being an assistant principal is, it wasn't really feeding my purpose. You know, I want to, I want to make kids better. And it was a lot of paperwork and a lot of, you know, spending time with the same kids that were having issues and I could help those kids. I thought, um, you know, but I think in the classroom, I could help more kids. So I left after four years of being an assistant principal, I came back to the classroom so I could, I could actually use the curriculum on my students and work with it and test it. Um, at the same time, at the same time, I've, you know, I'm coaching. So I'm coaching a junior high team and I'm going to pick up a high school team next year. But for me, when it comes to coaching, I just, I want to make them better people. Right. So my, my curriculum is, is really important. And I could, I could care less if they win or lose. Um, I just want them to be better people. And I think that if you make them better people, then the wins are going to come. Right. If you, if you're trying hard, if you're committed, if you're optimistic, all these things, and it doesn't mean I'm, it doesn't mean we're just going to talk all practice, every practice, but we have this 10 minute conversation. I think it, it brings out more of them. Um, and because of my connections with, with Spartan race, um, I've gotten connected with some, with some nonprofits that are using, using the curriculum. Um, I get to work with beat the streets, which is the best we have. We have beat the streets Bay, Bay area here. And again, beat the streets. And the guy that's in charge that kind of sets everything up here is Daniel McCune, incredible guy. Um, but but uh, you know, the purpose of Beat the Streets is to use the sport of wrestling as a vehicle to help kids better themselves, right? Yep. And get out, of, get out of their situation. And if you don't add the mental piece to that, then, then, and you're hoping the kids fight out on their own, then you're not gonna be as good at making that happen. So it's, it's fun for me to do that. So if I, if I do get like a sports team or a business or you know, um, a nonprofit that, that wants to use this stuff, then I'm, I'm very willing to share. Um, I just think it's my, my purpose and my passion, you know, based on you've, you've heard the story, but I just want people to understand, you know, how they can, how they can potentially be better and happier. And uh, if I get to do that, then that's something that I, I want. Well, you've, you said something there that stuck in my mind without the mental piece, you know, you can do a lot of wrestling without the mental piece though. Some of the lessons might not stick. And I've often thought that because we all know a lot of wrestlers who are absolute knuckleheads who aren't good people. Maybe they're alcoholics. Maybe they were kind of douchebags. I don't know. Right. I mean, it, so it often makes me wonder, I'm like, well, is wrestling really that great? Cause look at all these guys that I know a lot of them that are kind of losers now. And, but maybe you said something that stuck out. It's like, well, maybe they were just around a coach that was really good at putting them through the workouts, but not the mental piece. Right. And so they're tough. They're physically tough. They can beat up anyone, but they don't, they're not a good person. And so I wonder if that's the piece that's missing. Cause I often think about that. And I know every sport has knuckleheads, but you know what I mean though? That's, that's something that eats at me too. Like, I just don't understand how the lessons that you learn from wrestling don't translate to other parts of your life. Right. You know, so for example, the, for example, the athlete that does really well in wrestling, like you referenced, um, you know, not trying hard in school. That makes no sense to me. Can't understand um, it. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's a nut to nut that maybe you and I can crack when we talk later. Right. Um, but, but I'd like to, I'd like to get to that because I really think, I really think that if you wrestle, you're, you're different, you're a different breed. And it should be like, if you get a, if you get a test or if you get a, a term paper that you're going to do, you're like, this is nothing. 
you know, I, I got this, I can make, I can make this happen. So, you know, I wrestle with that though. You know, that same thing you're talking about though. It's like, and I tell people that where if I'm helping someone get a job, you know, there's nothing more scary than starting a new job. And, but then I say, look at all those people who are doing it. They're not freaking wrestlers. There's no way they've been through anything close to what you've been through, you know? And so if you know how to harness that and it's a learning process for all of us, you know, that it's just, go ahead. That might be part of my discussions. Like, Hey, you're doing this wrestling, you know, can you apply this? Can you apply this to other things? Can you apply this optimism that you use to make yourself better to other areas in your life? Or do you just believe that, you know, I'm just stupid and I can't, I can't learn math. Um, you know, so that's, that's a piece, that's a piece maybe in, in having this brief discussion about this, that maybe I should add to what I'm doing. Well, I think it's something where what you're doing is incredible and it's helping. I can't even imagine how many people and, you know, knowing you're back in the classroom is awesome because you told the story about being a principal. I'm like, that's pretty cool. But I bet your students are heartbroken when you had to leave the classroom. So I'm glad you're back in there now in the trenches. And man, I, I'm excited just to see, you know, how much we learn from each other over the years, Jay, and uh, to continue the, the friendship. Cause it's been awesome. And just these two calls we've had, they haven't been brief. Both of them have been about an hour like this. So I really appreciate you you know, redrudging some of these stories just to convey the importance of the lessons we're talking about here. And so greatly appreciate your time uh, and your, uh, and your transparency coming on the show, Jay. Hey, appreciate it. And, and I'll say it again. I just really love what you're doing for the sport of wrestling. And if, if someone listens to your podcast, they can, they can feel, feel the passion and the effort. And, you know, those are, if we're talking something that translates over, Guaranteed you learn those things in wrestling, or at least they're reinforced for wrestling. And then they're moving into moving into this area of your life. And I'm on, I'm on number four of the, uh, the Smith Smiths. series and they are fantastic. I get so lost in them because, and then afterwards I start thinking about, oh my gosh, the passion that this took and the effort that this took, it's just, it's astounding. So keep doing what you're doing. Um, the sport loves you for it. And I'm just so grateful for you and what, what you're, what you're all about. Thank you, Jay Jackson. I appreciate it, sir. First of, or second of many conversations I hope to have with you in the future. And all great things must come to an end. If you want to hear more from the podcast, text wrestle to five, 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 eight, eight, eight. That's wrestle to five, 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 eight, eight, eight. You can also find us on Instagram, wrestling changed my life, Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner as well as our website, wrestlingchangemylife.com. Take care, y'all.